assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. This is the time of year when faith is necessary. For right now, all but 15, all but 11 of 11 days of 2015 are not yet seen. They're only hoped for. Faith isn't necessary any longer for 2014. But it is for 2015 and what we face ahead. It's a, a critical time for us as a church. We have our family meeting tonight. We're coming through three to four years of, of change and transition that have marked our church. And we don't yet see all that we want to see and what we believe God wants us to become. We need faith for what God desires to do in us. And for many of us, it's a critical time personally. With issues at work or family, with health or school, relationships, finances, faith is required for the road ahead. Faith is required for what is hoped for, for what is as yet unseen. There are over 500 mentions of faith in Scripture, and we're only going to have an opportunity to get to about half of those before the family meeting starts in a few hours. Obviously, with so many texts, uh, this isn't going to be our, our usual exposition of a single passage, but we want to give an overview, a look throughout Scripture at what it has to say about the topic of faith. Um, but there is one verse in particular, Hebrews 11.6, where we will get our main ideas as we consider this important topic this morning. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. So here is our simple outline this morning. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Two points we're going to be looking at. Um, Faith pleasing to God is, well, we're going to fill in those blanks. That's if you're wanting to write ahead. Um, this is where we're going to go. We're going to look at two elements that faith pleasing to God is. I'm aware of my need for God's help. I'm aware of just with so many thoughts and ideas in Scripture presented on this topic, I, I have way more in my head than we have time to look at. So would you pray with me that God would help us, would help me um, as we listen to His Word this morning. Lord, thank You for the riches that You give in Your Word. I pray that You would use these riches 
to enliven, to illumine, to enrich in us. We need what you have for us. And only you can give it to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us faith to believe. We pray this that we might be strengthened in you and that your name might be glorified. Amen. Faith pleasing to God, number one, is required of unfaithful people. Faith is required. We get that from that verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. The author doesn't say, without faith it is kind of tricky to please God. Without faith it is really, really, really hard to please God. Or even, without faith it's mission impossible, impossible to please God. No, it's totally impossible to please God without faith. It cannot be done. Part of the reason why it is impossible begins with who we are dealing with and who needs to exercise faith. It it begins with the reality that we are a messed up bunch. If we were to look at this 11th chapter of Hebrews in more detail than we can this morning, this faith chapter, um, we would see this list of the heroes of the faith. And indeed, these individuals are each commended by God in these pages. But as you read down the list of names, Abraham and Sarah, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, David. It doesn't take too long to recall some serious flaws in these folks. Our qualifications for care group leaders would screen most of these guys out. Abraham was willing to protect himself by telling everyone that his wife was his sister to keep him out of trouble. And that almost landed them in some serious hot water on a couple of occasions. Sarah herself gave her maidservant to her husband in order to bear the heir that was promised through her. Moses killed a guy and was given to great fear at times. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a coward. David committed adultery and covered it up with murder. This is a faulty bunch. Yet faith was required of each of them. And ultimately, faith was commended in each of them. So faith isn't limited to perfect people. Faith is required of unfaithful people. Which is good news for each of us because... Whether you've had the opportunity to look around yet this morning or not, there are no perfect people here among us. So what is faith? 
What does it look like for us to use and exercise faith? Is it some sort of power or force? I saw a trailer for a movie this week where the main character um, was was putting faith in action in a way that that looked a lot like a lot like Luke, a lot like Luke Skywalker learning to use the force. As he tried to manipulate the surroundings. Is that how Peter and Paul went around? Is that how we're to understand the nature of faith? We kind of you got to close your eyes and reach out your hands, and then maybe you'll see something happening, something moving, something by some power that flows through us. Or is faith simply a set of beliefs? If if we are to believe all the details of the Apostles' Creed, are, are we then good to go? Is that what it means to please God? Is that what it takes to please Him? Do you believe in God the Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth? Oh yeah, yeah, check. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord, His only Son? Yeah, I do. Check. Okay, then we're good. Is that what faith is? Is that what faith requires? Well, I don't think that's the limit. What we believe is important, and we're going to get to that, but it's not simply an assent to a statement of faith or beliefs. See, the demons know all of that. They know He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, He rose again. They have no illusions about that. They could answer the questions on that test far better than you or I could. Maybe another passage with demons and faith will shed some light for us. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 20. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and said, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. 
I don't know about you, but passages like this both inspire me and thrill me as well as perplex me and even frighten me. It's not unusual to hear Jesus lamenting the lack of faith in the disciples or their generation, but but what's especially odd here it seems, is, is his solution to the problem. On first blush, it seems no different than the problem itself. You have too little faith. What you need is faith the size of a mustard seed, which is really tiny. Huh? There is something else here that, that we are missing. And I think it is found in the subtle clues about how the disciples could not heal Him. And the question of why could we not cast it out? When Jesus is criticizing their little faith, He isn't rebuking them for the amount of faith. Indeed, His answer is that they only need a mustard seed's worth. What He is correcting is the smallness of what their faith is in themselves. I think we see this answer even a bit more clearly in Hebrews 11.6, which we've already read. But again, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. What is pleasing or unpleasing to God is not what we believe about unseen things or future circumstances or events, but what we believe about the unseen God. As Hebrews states, we must believe that He exists and He is a rewarder. Faith that is pleasing to God is based on the character of God. Faith that is pleasing to God is faith placed in God. That's our second point this morning where we'll spend the rest of our time. This is why without faith it is impossible to please God. Because if our Faith, our trust, our hope is not in Him. Well, is it hard to reason why He would not be pleased with anything that we do? Our faith is our declaration of who God is. It is evidenced in our words and in our lives. And it makes all the sense in the world that God takes particular interest in such declarations. Our faith isn't in the circumstance of Aunt Betty being healed of her cancer. Our faith is in a kind and merciful God who takes compassion upon us in our weakness and is fully able to heal even our worst afflictions if it pleases Him to do so. Our faith is in the character of God. Now, whether the disciples in the 
The passage that we just read, we're focused on their ability to somehow heal the boy by saying the right things, by repeating what they had heard Jesus say, or whether they were focused on the largeness of the task that was before them and caused them to fear. It is not clear. But what is clear is that their faith was not anchored in the proper place. Its object was too little for even a mustard seed of faith in a big God is more than enough. When we are faced with the trials of life, what question is more important for us than what is God like? What does who He is have to do and relate with the situation I find myself in? Who has He revealed Himself to be? How does that intersect with my circumstances? And and just to give you um, a little insight, this is the goal that I have as I meet with someone for counseling. This is the question I want to ask. What are they facing? I want to hear their story, but... The next thing I want to find out is what do you believe about God? What do you understand? What is it that that you need to see more of Him and who He is that can help you in your time of need? There is no more important question for us than understanding the nature and the character of God in the myriad of our circumstances. As we dwell in between the brokenness of this present world and the glory that is yet to be revealed, we are daily faced with the question, will we take God at His Word? Will we trust Him even when our present situation makes it difficult? Will we take God at His Word and live our lives accordingly? Will we stake our eternity on what looks like foolishness to those that believe only what their eyes can see? We need God to help us expand our vision beyond what these two eyes can see to what God has revealed about Himself. Faith is not blind. It is not a narrowing of our view is an expanding of our view to include Him in it. Which is far more important than just the things that are going on around us. The reality of who He is defines and changes the circumstances that we find ourselves in. They are not threats to Him. They are not bigger than He is. And so we need to see Him rightly. We need to see Him clearly. That we might have faith for what we can't see yet in our circumstances. For what is only hoped for right now. Last week, Matt's message out of Acts 17 posed the question, what will we do with God's Word? And this message, I believe, is a natural follow-up to that question. Will we trust Him and what He says? Will we think we know better than He does? Do we think that He's actually big enough or strong enough 
to carry out what He says He will do? Do we think that He really has our best interests at heart? These are the questions that we've been facing since the Garden of Eden. And what we do with these questions makes it either impossible to please God or leaves us commended by God. Now our faith is never alone. Our actions point to what we truly believe. But it is our belief about and relationship with God that is pleasing to God. All the right actions in the world are empty apart from being based on our trust of Him. So, our faith is not in the outcome of events, but in the God who controls all events. Faith is not some power that we possess, but in God's omnipotence. Our faith is not in our vision and what we can see, but in God's omniscience, His all-knowingness. Though faith is confidence in what is unseen, it is not blind or unreasonable. You see, we have a reason for faith. That is faith's object, faith's person, the Creator of heaven and earth, the Sovereign One, the Savior and Redeemer of all those who call upon His name, the One who holds all things together and is working out every element of His creation for His good purposes. There is a reason for faith. And there is nothing more reasonable than faith in this God. Since faith that pleases God is placed in God and His character, let's look at a few of His attributes, a few of His character qualities to see how they might impact our faith. The first we want to begin with is the reality that simply God is faithful. I think the, the first question that we often face is, can I trust God? Someone comes to Him or hears about Him would be a natural question. Can I trust Him? Why should I put my faith in Him? I have been let down by everyone else. Not even... Necessary, necessarily maliciously, but even parents and friends and spouses disappoint at different times. They fail to keep their words or forget to follow through on promises. Why should I trust God? Well, God tells us in Numbers 23, God is not man that He should lie. Or a son of man, that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? He is not like us. He does not lie or fail to fulfill what he has said. When God makes a promise, he means it. There is no greater guarantee in all the universe than the speaking God. At His Word, 
All that we see was formed from nothing. The winds and the waves obey His command. All that He speaks, He brings to pass. Scripture is full of His promises kept. Genesis 15 tells us of how God interacted with Abraham. Of how He came to him and made him a promise to make, to give him a great inheritance. Make him a great nation when he yet had no children, only Eleazar, his servant, to inherit his property. And God, in that moment, when when Abraham asked him, how do I know this is true? God could have just said, because I said it. Do you know what happens when I speak? But He was kind and gracious. And He said, I'll do this. I'll make an oath with you. And He, and he told Abraham to prepare a heifer and a goat and a ram and some birds. And, and so Abraham did. And he, he sacrificed these animals and he cut them in half and he laid them out upon the ground with a path in between the halves of the carcasses. And then he fell asleep. And when he came to, he saw the Lord walking between the carcasses, which in their society was how an oath was fulfilled by stating the terms of your promises and then declaring what will happen to you if you fail to uphold your end of the bargain. What God was doing was declaring, may what has happened to these animals happen to me if I fail to be faithful to the promises I have made to you. But it wasn't Abraham that was walking through. It wasn't Abraham whose feet were being held to the fire to say, you better or else. It was God taking that upon Himself to say, I will be faithful. Even to my own harm, I pledge to you. My faithfulness. Do you think that resonated with Abraham? As he walked with his son to the mount where God told him to sacrifice him. This child of promise, this fulfillment of God making a nation through Him, beginning through His son Isaac. What thoughts filled Abraham's mind? What did he need to believe about God in that moment to obey in such an amazing way? He had to believe that God gave him Isaac. There was no other way from their old bodies that this was possible. 
Isaac was a gift from God. And he was the one who it was declared that this promise would be fulfilled, but God also clearly said, take your son, Isaac. I don't know how perplexed he was in that moment. If he tried to explain it to Isaac as he's putting him on the stone and the wood, as his hand gets ready with the blade. But Hebrews reveals that whatever else he thought and believed, he also was convinced of this, that God can give him back even from the dead. He believed that God would be faithful to His promise. He believed in the promise-keeping God. Now God put His own character on the line in Genesis 15 when He promised to make Abraham a great nation. And 500 years later, even though Abraham is no longer around and is long since in the grave, And his offspring that have now become a large nation haven't exactly been model citizens, yet God is still faithful to His promise. God tells Abraham's descendants in Deuteronomy 7, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. So God is faithful. First attribute we want to see that gives us the ability to have faith in Him. But how do we know that He has our interests at heart? I mean, this is the question we've been asking since the serpent deceived Eve into thinking that God was withholding something good from her in the prohibition against eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's the same lie that we believe when we think that God's commands are too restrictive or His way is too hard. It's the whisper in our ear when we see something we want but only seem to encounter Divine roadblocks when it comes to attaining it. The whispers of if God was really for you, He wouldn't make you wait to get that better job or find a spouse or get that spot on the team or finally get pregnant or make your child well. If He really loved you, you wouldn't be struggling with finances or fighting with your spouse or failing algebra. Does the enemy seek to lead us astray any less than He did Eve? 
What do you need to know and trust in regards to God's character after the miscarriage? After the breakup? After the layoff? Where does your help come from? One place it comes from is the reality that our God saves. Do you realize that you were included in God's promise to Abraham? God's willingness to stake His reputation on keeping His promises, even to His own hurt. That reality helps us as we fight for faith. You see, the cross is His answer to those of us who wonder whether He could have our best interests at heart. He took the wrath that we deserved. He was committed to His promise to the point of His own suffering and His own death. We know He is for us because He chose when it would have been perfectly just and right to have us suffer and pay the penalty for our sins. He chose instead to suffer in our place. To make our healing and forgiveness and freedom possible. How do we know that He has our best interests at heart? Because our God saves. He rescues and redeems even to the point of His own death. Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Could there be clearer statements to the reality that God is for us? If He did not spare His own Son from the agony, the humiliation, the wrath of God that we deserved, if He did not spare His Son, but gave Him up for us, how can we wonder whether He is for us? Whether His face is directed towards us in love and kindness. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? This morning when we were singing, if, if you're in that place of recognizing that you don't know Him, oh, please... There is nothing more important for you than this question this morning. What is your faith in for your future, for your eternity? Is it in your ability to outweigh good with bad? You'll never do it. Is it to try and buy your way in somehow? It can't happen. Is your faith in yourself in any way? Then it is a lost cause. Your only hope is in the character of a merciful God who chooses to forgive. He is not obligated to. 
We held nothing against Him that could say, you have to do this, God, or else. We had no right, no stake to that claim. Except that, God Himself made that promise. God Himself said, to my own hurt, to my own suffering, I will fulfill my promises through you. I will see you forgiven. I will see you claimed as one of my own. Our only hope is in the gracious, loving, merciful character of that God. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What is it that will keep God's love from you? None of those things. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is for you. His heart is directed at you and there is nothing that can separate you from His love. Not your failures. Not your circumstances. He is greater than them all. and He has determined that His love will defeat everyone. That He is for us certainly includes our salvation, but I think it has application far beyond. It's actually one of the, the realities that help me, that help my faith every time I prepare a message because inevitably on Saturday, I'm full of doubts and questions I wonder where my faith is placed. Is it in myself, in my error-free preparation? Because that has never happened. Is it in my brilliance as a communicator? Again, no hope there. Faith is in a God who loves His people. That's my hope. That He loves all of you. And He wants to speak to you. As I open my mouth. That's my confidence. My confidence is not in my own clever musings, but the wisdom of a God who decided to have you and me be in this room together this morning with all of our faults and with all of our shortcomings and glorify Himself in the midst of it. He wants to be seen as bigger in our midst. And that's something I have faith for. Because I can take assurance in the reality that our great God uses the weak and foolish things of this world, earthen jars, so that He can display Himself all the more clearly. These are the truths of God's character that reassure me that I need in that moment when I prepare and wonder, does this make sense to anybody outside of my own head? 
What is your faith in as you approach the Sunday gathering each week? Do you look forward to it? Do you expect more to happen than a nice chat with your friends? Do you expect the in- to encounter God Himself? Do you expect to encounter God Himself as we sing? Or encouraged by a word or Scripture or a sermon? Do you believe that He works in such ways? Do you recognize that what goes on here should, should be so much greater than simply the sum of the parts of the people that are gathered here? My voice plus your ears will never equal a God encounter. But when the divine speaker is pleased to whisper into our ears in those moments, when He chooses to illumine our hearts and minds and reveal more of Himself to us, well, friends, that is why we gather. That is what we long for. We don't come here week after week to congratulate ourselves or to be a mutual self-help society. We meet with one another believing that He delights in meeting with us. We gather in anticipation not of learning more about Him, but of knowing Him more personally. Because He has given us another glimpse of Himself today. And that's why with full knowledge of many of my biggest weaknesses, I stand up to speak, believing that God will speak louder than my insufficiencies. I guarantee you that if your focus is on the human elements of our gatherings, you'll be disappointed time and again. But if you believe that the Almighty Creator of heaven and earth wants to commune with you, and if you listen with those ears, I don't think He will disappoint. Do you believe in a God who saves, who redeems? Do you believe in a God who rescues lost causes, who parties with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors, who calls, himself, calls to Himself the idolater, the blasphemer, the fornicator, liar, and thief? Is your God big enough to transform the persecutor of the church into its foremost apostle? To use unschooled fishermen to turn the world upside down? What about God's stat sheet gives you doubt about His ability to use you for His purposes? What about His history would cause us to think that this church's greatest days aren't still ahead? If we look around and don't see many movers and shakers and impressive types, sorry, but don't you think that's exactly the place He might want us to be to show Himself? To not have there be any question of who's really doing the work. Our God saves. He is for us and for the mission that He has called us to. Well, the fact that He is for us is indeed good news. It is the essence of good news. But even if we are convinced that He is for us, we can still have doubts and questions. Does that mean... 
Is he big enough to do what he wants to do? I mean, he, he can be, have all the best of intentions, but unable to bring about all of his plans. Well, that's where we come to our third attribute. The fact that God is in control. Let's start with the big stuff. 11, Hebrews 11.3 The universe was created by the Word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He is powerful enough to create heaven and earth simply by stating, let there be. And there was. He upholds everything by His all-powerful, omnipotent hand. Next time you go to the beach, go down to the water and scoop up as much as you can into your bare hands. Get your kids with you. Have them scoop up as much as they can. Measure how much you are able to hold. Even if we put both hands together, is there anyone here that, that could hold more than a cup? A pint? In this? Oceans fit in the hollow of His hand. He declared in Isaiah, who has measured the waters in the hollows of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span, the distance between here and here? Who has measured them and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? He's big enough. He determines the course of nations and kings. And Romans 8 tells us that He works all things for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. All things. Not just hurricanes and national elections, but even the hairs on your head are numbered. He watches over the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and He will not fail to care for you. In my wife, Colleen, I see the steadfast faith that she has every day in the midst of her back pain. Her anchor is a firm conviction that God is sovereign. He is in control that He is working all things for our good and His glory. She's convinced that He does nothing without meaning or purpose. Now, we pray daily for the pain to be removed. We pray daily that healing would be part of His purpose. But she does not curse God for the hard road. And we are so grateful that she was convinced of these attributes of God's character before this trial came. Because trials themselves can cause lots of doubts. Time to be learning who God is is right now. Hopefully before the storm comes. 
Because when the storm comes, you want a refuge you can run to. It's a lot harder to believe the things written on the pages of this book when your emotions are raging against what that says. Be convinced who He is from His Word, not how you feel in the midst of your trouble. So where do we go when we see world events or personal circumstances that perplex and threaten to shake us to the core? Do we believe that God is still on the throne? Do we cling to His goodness and wisdom even when we can't yet see it with our eyes? We must go to what He has clearly revealed. Because in the face of circumstances that tempt us to doubt is when we need those realities reinforced the most. We would be foolish to say to God in those moments that we know better than He does. Yet that's where our hearts take us. We need to ask for understanding and fight to see Him reveal a greater glory than we can presently imagine. It is the limitation of our vision that keeps us from seeing, not a flaw in His divine character. And as we believe, it will be counted to us as righteousness. Now folks, one of the things that we hope and we look forward to, it's not yet seen, but a day is coming when faith and hope will no longer be necessary. Then we will be with Him. Then we will walk not by faith, but by sight. We will see the reality of our hopes, of the promises fulfilled. Hopes will be realized, and there will be no more that is unseen. All that will remain in that moment is the love between us. Do you have thoughts that your circumstances or your sins are too big for God? If so... Your God is too small. You need to abandon this God of your own making and run to the God of Scripture. Run to the God who made you and sent His Son to redeem you. So I leave you with this. How big is your God? Is He big enough to have created the heavens and the earth and everything in them? Out of nothing. Do you believe in a different God than Abraham believed in when he placed his son Isaac on the altar? Believing that when God commanded him to thrust his knife blade into this child of promise, that God was even able to bring him back from the dead. Do you believe in the same God Moses did when he stood before Pharaoh telling him to let God's people go? Is your God big enough to part the Red Sea and to deliver His people? Do you believe in a different God than the one that sustained the Israelites in the desert for 40 years? Do you believe in the same God that Rahab the prostitute feared when she hid the Israelite spies and helped them escape from Jericho? Is your God as big as Gideon's was when he shrunk his army from 32,000 to 300 so that God could display His might? 
Do you believe in the same God David did when he stood before Goliath without the king's armor and only a sling and some stones in his hand? Do you believe in the same God Elijah did when he faced the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Do you believe in the same God Ezekiel did when he saw a valley of dry bones given new life? Is your God big enough to give speech to a donkey to shut the mouths of lions and walk with children thrown into the fiery furnace? Is your God able to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, make the lame walk and the dead live? Do you know a love greater than a God willing to humble Himself? Willing to be mocked and mistreated and crucified by His creation so that He might rescue the very ones driving the stakes into His hands and His feet? Do you know a God that raises the dead? Is it at the name of your God that every knee will bow on earth and on heaven and under the earth and confess His greatness? How big is your God? Do you want your faith to grow? Then grow your view of God. For centuries, creeds and catechisms have been used to encourage the church towards truths about God that anchor us through the tests and trials of life. Now, they're not for knowledge's sake. They're for application. Um, But I encourage you towards these great truths that have helped believers for centuries. Consider as you go through them why this element of God's character is so important. How does it intersect with your life? A couple of books that are not on the topic of faith, but will help as you just consider who God is include Knowing God by J.I. Packer, Knowledge of the Holy by Tozer, Bible Doctrine by Grudem, Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. These are books that wonderfully bring us face to face with just the reality of who God is. And friends, that's what we need. Because that is the place that we put our faith. It's not in some ability or power within us or hope for our particular circumstances. It's believing that this powerful God has our best interests at heart and He will act according to His love and His kindness on our behalf and for His glory. Would you pray with me? Could the band come?